I thought I'd pick up this lecture at 393, just about 392E. Um, I seem to be a ridiculous teacher and an unclear one, I said. So just like men who are incompetent at speaking, instead of speaking about the whole in general, I'll cut off a part and with it, and with it attempt to make plain to you what I want. Tell me. Do you know the first things in the Iliad where the poet tells of Chrysi's begging Agamemnon to ransom his daughter, and Agamemnon's harshness and Chrysi's calling down curses from the god on the Achaeans when he failed? I do. And you know that up to these lines, and he entreated all the Achaeans, but especially Atreus's two sons, the marshalers of the host, the poet himself speaks and doesn't attempt to turn our thought elsewhere, as though someone other than he were speaking. But in what follows, he speaks as though he himself were Christie's, and tries as hard as he can to make it seem to us that it's not Homer speaking, but the priest, an old man. And in this way, he made pretty nearly all the rest of the narrative about the events in Ilium, as well as about those in Ithaca and the whole Odyssey. Well, certainly, he said, isn't it narrative when he gives all the speeches and also what comes between the speeches? Of course. But when he gives a speech as though he were someone else, won't he say that he then likens his own style as much as possible to that of, a man, of the man he has announced as a speaker? We'll say that, surely. Isn't likening himself to someone else, either in voice or in looks, the same as imitating the man he likens himself to? Surely. Then in this case, it seems, he and the other poets use imitation in making their narrative. Most certainly. If the poet nowhere hid himself, his poetic work and narrative as a whole would have taken place without imitation, so that you won't say you don't understand again. I'll tell you how this would be. If Homer said that Christie's came bringing a ransom for his daughter and as a suppliant to the Achaeans, especially to the kings, and after that didn't speak as though he'd become Christie's, but still as Homer, you know that it wouldn't be imitation but simple narrative. It wouldn't be some it would be something like this. I'll speak without meter. I'm not poetic. The priests came and prayed that the gods grant them the capture of Troy and their own safety, and that they accept compensation and free his daughter out of reverence for the god. When he had said this, the others there showed pious respect and consented. But Agamemnon was angry and ordered him to leave immediately and not to come back again, or else his scepter and the gods' chaplets would protect him. Before his daughter would be freed, he said she'd grow old with him in Argos. He ordered him to go away and not provoke him if he wished to get home safely. The old man heard and was frightened. He went away in silence. But when he'd withdrawn from the camp, he made a great prayer to Apollo, calling upon the god with his special names, reminding him and asking a return if anything he had ever given had been pleasing, whether it was in the building of temples or the sacrifice or victims. In return for them... He called down the gods' arrows on the Achaeans in payment for his tears. That, my comrade, I said, is the way simple narrative without imitation comes to pass. I understand, he said. Now, I said, understand that the opposite of this comes to pass when someone takes out the poet's connections between the speeches and leaves the exchanges. That I understand, too, he said. That's the way it is with, tra with tragedies. Your supposition is most correct, I said. And now I suppose I can make plain to you what I couldn't before. Of poetry and tale-telling, one kind proceeds wholly by imitation, as you say, tragedy and comedy, another by the poet's own report. This, of course, you would find in Dithyrams, and still another by both. 
This is found in epic poetry and many other places, if you understand me. Now I said, I grasp what you wanted to say then. And remember too that before this we asserted that what must be said had already been stated, but uh, that what must be said uh, had already been stated, but that how it must be said had still to be considered. I do remember. Now this is exactly what I meant. We must come to an agreement as to whether we'll let the poets make their narratives for us by imitation, or whether they are to imitate some things and not others, and what sort belongs to each group, and whether they are not to imitate at all. I think this is the key uh, beginning of a conversation on mimesis that we started having these last couple of weeks. That is, what is being imitated, what is being represented, and to what end? And is there a way to ethically represent the things in the world that you want to discuss? I mean, so that was, uh, we stopped right there at about 394D. I want to pick up again where Socrates um, begins to pull on this thread for Adamantus. So this would be 395B. Human nature, Adamantus, looks to me to be minted in even smaller coins than this. So it is unable either to make a fine imitation of many things, or to do the things themselves of which the imitations are in fact only likenesses. Very true, he said. If then we are to preserve the first argument, that our guardians must give up all other crafts, and very precisely the craftsmen of the city's freedom, and practice nothing, and practice nothing other than what tends to it, they also mustn't do or imitate anything else. If they do imitate, they must imitate what's appropriate to them from childhood. Men who are courageous, moderate, holy, free, and everything of the sort. And what is slavish or anything else shameful, they must neither do nor be clever at imitating, so that they won't get a taste for the being from its imitation. Or haven't you observed that imitations, if they are practiced continually from youth onwards, become established as habits and nature, in body and sounds and in thought? Quite so. So then I said, we won't allow those whom we claim we care for, and who must themselves become good men to imitate women, since they are men, either a young woman or an older one, or one who's abusing her husband, or one who's striving with gods and boasting because she supposes herself to be happy, or one who's caught in the grip of misfortune, mourning and wailing, and will be far from needing one who's sick, or in love, or in labor. That's entirely certain, he said. Nor must they in any event imitate slaves, women or men, who are doing the slavish things. No, they mustn't. Nor, as it seems, bad men who are cowards and doing the opposite of what we just now said, insulting and making fun of one another and using shameful language, drunk or sober, or committing the other faults that such men commit against themselves and others in speeches and deeds. Nor do I suppose they should be accustomed to likening themselves to madmen in speeches and in deeds, or in deeds. For although they must know both mad and worthless men and women, they must neither do nor imitate anything of theirs. So, on Monday we'll have the opportunity uh, to speak with a Divine Child High School alum who's been working in Hollywood, and we'll ask the extent to which the scripts for the television and movies that we tend to watch, whether they avoid this trap of imitation that Socrates warns against. And we'll ask if it's a trap, if we know it's a trap, it's a trap, why don't we try to avoid it? What is it about desire that Socrates is already introducing into the argument? That's it for this episode. We'll pick up again. We just stopped at about 
96A.